Do we see love and forgiveness? There's a former Navy SEAL turned motivational speaker, turned defense, self-defense teacher, and has all Navy SEALs are taught to understand the way the enemy thinks and teaching self-defense, he found that those who preyed upon the weak would watch their body language as they would walk in and out of stores or in public. They would never seek to stalk someone who seemed to be firm in their direction in the way that they were carrying themselves. But those who sort of meandered and didn't really have a driving purpose, those are the ones that they focused upon. And you understand that that's completely demonic. That is exactly what Satan does. If you don't have your mission clearly defined as a believer, you're going to suffer a lot more attack to dissuade you and keep you from being fruitful. You can see he does this with the unsaved. They meander. They look. They have no purpose in life. They just fall deeper and deeper into sin and have so many different strongholds in their life. You know, God has come to give us all direction and purpose for our lives. This story is a great little story this morning. It's a true story. It's a picture, really, of sinful man. And uh, generally speaking, it illustrates us in our repentance and coming to the Lord. So it's a really potent uh, study. So if you'll stand, I'm going to read through the verses, and then we'll break it down and take it apart so it can take us apart and put us back together. (laughs) Verse 36, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when, nothing, when they had nothing with which to pay, repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Oh, I suppose the one who forgave, he forgave more. And he said, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I've entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with the fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may be seated. You know, sometimes when you're reading through the Gospels, you kind of get the impression that Jesus was continually at odds with the leaders of the nation, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, he obviously did rebuke self-righteousness, um, but as I have said before, Jesus wasn't a hammer looking for a nail. You know, he's not out there to judge people and condemn them and confront all the evil. I mean, he never would have had a ministry if he did that, being perfect, you know, he could do that, but he didn't do that. He was a gracious man. And I think nobody understands fallen man better than the Lord himself. He understands our condition quite well. And, and that does not restrict him for attempting to reach us right where we're at. He knows the world in which we live in. He knows that the only thing that will help us is the truth. It is the truth that sets us free. There's nothing else that's going to set us free from our sin, from our guilt, but the truth. And so uh, I think many people outside the church, outside of faith, do not understand how open and willing the Lord is to conversate with them. He will speak to them. He wants to reveal himself. And this is sort of a picture that we have here. Um, this sinner coming to Jesus wasn't invited, just saw, knew that he was there, going to come to see Jesus. And so it, it obviously is a story that illustrates love and forgiveness, which is what we're all about as believers, right? It really, as I said, is a real illustration of the sinner's repentance and that leads to conversion. And, you know, you think about what it was like for you coming out of darkness and entering the kingdom of light. And you're going to be able to relate to a lot of this because this is how it happened to you. It's how it happened to me. You know, some of the commentators, and, and it's okay, you know, I'm just a little bit different in this. I don't think this is the same story that's in John 11, Mark 14, and Matthew 26, where we have Mary, you know, coming and breaking the flask of oil and, and the whole Judas situation, getting upset and all that. That was like a week before he, uh, he died uh, on the cross or, or thereabouts. Uh, the biggest reason, if you look at look all the way down at, well, my bottom, it's the bottom of the page here. Uh, <laughs> chapter 8, verse 1. Notice what it says here. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. I think Luke's presentation of the gospel is more of a, in a linear sense. Jesus only had a week when that happened with Mary. You know, she has anointed me for my burial. So I, this is, a, I believe it to be a separate incident. And in, in early on, in the beginning of, of his ministry, because you, you remember, he's gone through this whole thing of forgiving sins, and the Pharisees and the self-righteous scribes are like, whoa, whoa, you're forgiving people's sins? <laughs> Wait a minute. You know, they're, 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 they're balking at this. So uh, anyway, we have our reason for what we believe, but I'm not maybe going to be hardcore about it. I just think it's pretty cool 
what Jesus did, uh, what he did for this lady. And it all started with an, in a dinner invitation. You know, we have this picture in the Old Testament. If you don't see this picture in the Old Testament, you miss the heart of the Father. You miss the heart of God. The whole idea of, of worship and the tabernacle worship of bringing your sacrifice, coming before Yahweh, having your sins forgiven and your sin covered, and then taking your family off to the side, and, and, and the whole camp is eating before Yahweh and in his house. That was his house. And that's why Jesus spent a lot of time going to sinners' homes. You know, Revelation 3 talks about, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If, if you'll open the door, I'll come in and sup with you and you with me. This is the intimate relationship that God wants to have. What is more intimate thing to do with with your brothers and sisters than to eat with them. It's just, it's a wonderful thing. There's spiritual connotations there, there as well. I mean, you're eating the food, the same food. You're getting strengthened. I'm getting strengthened. We're being blessed by our presence. I mean, it's just all kinds of uh, things that are tied together with that. So it's an important concept to get. And so the Pharisee, probably wanting to get to know Jesus, but there are many believe that this, his name is Simon. Uh, he was... Uh, a leper who had been healed. Now, we don't know that for sure in this particular story, but it's quite possible. So maybe he just wanted to get to know Jesus a little bit better. We really are not given that kind of information. But this is one of the things I want to express to people who maybe are outside the faith, or that, that this guy, what did he do to get Jesus, to get closer to Jesus, or to get to know Jesus a little bit better? He asked him for dinner. He asked him to have that personal encounter. Most sinners are intimidated by God. The last thing I wanted to do before I was a Christian was have a conversation with God. Because something inside me said, you know, I'm not living right, and I'm, I don't think he's interested in what I'm doing. And I wanted, you know, nothing to do with it. But he asked, and Jesus went if Jesus is sincerely asked by anyone, he will come. That's just the kind of God he is. He cares. And it says here that he sat down and to eat. So he's willing to enter into a deeper conversation and go through this. And this is what I really want to see. Is this, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is God's approach to dealing with people who are laden with sin, that lives are just being destroyed by sin. Not once do you see Jesus hammering these people or condemning them or telling them that they're going to burn in hell. You know, people already know that. People already know they're lost. No one needed to tell me before I was saved that I was on my way to hell. I didn't want to go there. But I knew that that was what I deserved because of the way I was living. You don't need to tell people that, as if that's going to break them down. Oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, you know, it might. You might have a rare occasion where that does work. But what does the Bible tell us about this particular area? It is the goodness of God. It is the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. It's not the wrath of God. You know, you think about all the judgments that, that are you go through the book of Revelation. Not a lot of people repent. They get harder in judgment more often than not. So with that said, 
let's take a little look at this here. This lady, now I really don't really understand the, the setting here, uh, but you get the feel, not, and I'm not up on all the customs of the first century there, but you have almost like it's an open air dining area. So like people walking down the path or walking by could, you know, hey, they're eating, you know, they're eating dinner, you know, kind of like, you know, next door here at Chikara Alley, you know, people do eat outside, you can see them. It might be a, something along those lines where she could just simply walk up uninvited because I'm pretty sure was she wouldn't have been invited to this one, right, for obvious reasons. And so she stands at his feet, as we've read here, and think about that for a moment. What does it mean to stand at the feet of Jesus? Think about that for a moment. That's judgment. We're all going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. Now, for the Christian, we're not going to stand at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, for our sins. Where were our, where were our sins judged? The Calvary, at the cross. God isn't going to say to you as a believer, okay, why did you do that sin back then on, you know, July 20th, 1979? I was, some of you weren't even born then, but whatever. He's not, that's not going to happen. The fact is, God has put away our sin. It's gone. What is that judgment about then? It is about your works. See, Satan can't take you back. No one plucks you out of the Father's hand, right? But he can seek to make your life unfruitful. And of no value as far as use in the kingdom. You really ha aren't willing to become a vessel of honor, so you remain a vessel of dishonor. And there's no reward there. It will be a judgment of your labor and what you did in his name. If it's not done with the purest of motive, that will be wood, hay, and stubble. And the presence of God in his holy is just phew, gone in a moment. Your works will be gone. What will remain will be the gold, the silver, and the precious jewels, the things that you did out of love, motivated by His Spirit, led by His Spirit to do those things, that you and I will be rewarded for. And this is the picture here that she's standing at His feet, but she's standing there not as a Christian, she's standing there as an unbeliever, dead in her sin, dead in her trespasses. This is more like the, the great white throne judgment that awaits those outside of faith, those who rejected God and rebelled against Him. And they're standing there at the feet of the throne of God. And they have no covering. They have no way to pay the debt that they owe to God. Oh, how scary of a thought that is. She's aware of her moral degradation. She's aware of her rebellion against God. In fact is, whether we know it or not, when people live in rebellion... It's always a downward spiral that leads to immorality, almost invariably. And it's sad because Satan gets a, a grip. You know, submission is like being under, under, under the umbrella of God's protection. You know, we use an umbrella on days like this when it's pouring out. It's just quite nice. You don't have the umbrella, well, you're going to get soaked. That's what submission is like to God. You have, you're under the umbrella of his submission, you know, the attacks and the enemy they're there, they're going to happen from time to time, but not nearly like it is when you're in rebellion against. You take away the umbrella of God's protection and you're just flesh waiting for the enemy to come and devour you. And that's what he does. 
This is where she stood, and she realizes this, and she falls to her knees, obviously. She gets down to his feet, and she begins to weep, demonstrating her repentance in a very humbling way, her brokenness over her sin, and what has brought her to this point in her life. And so these tears tell the story of her guilt. And see, this is what sin does. Sin is so destructive. It isn't God has all these rules so he can lord over us. It is because, look, if you do this, it's going to bring pain into your life. The no's and the don'ts are there to protect us from the damage that sin can cause. It's out of love that God warns us not to do certain things. Not because he's trying to restrict us from having fun. He just knows the damage it's going to cause. And this lady was damaged. Spirit and soul were damaged. She's broken and she's in tears. And she's washing his feet with her tears. And as she realizes that his feet are wet, she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now we're entering into another transition. The guilt has flowed from her is cried it out, so to speak. She now begins to serve the Lord. You know, he doesn't need this. I need to remove this dirt from him. I've soiled my Savior with my sin. I, it's not about me anymore. I'm, I'm forgiven. I, I, there's something changing in me. You, you just can see and sense the, a transition of life, going from death into life here. And she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. She's now beginning to focus not on self and her guilt, but upon the Lord. And this is what happens when we're saved. We no longer be, remain this self-centered, self-seeking individual, rebelling against God as his enemy, but now we become more like him. We, we learn to become other-centered. We begin thinking about the Lord and, and, and the focus on how we can serve him. She's no longer looking at her past failures of, of her sin. Something brand new has broken forth within her. She begins to kiss his feet, and now she's taken her service to another level, level of adoration, level of worship. It's not just that you've forgiven my sin. It's just not that I, I'm serving you from the lowest level, but I'm now entering into a higher level of just worship and honoring you for who you are. She really began to understand who this man was. He was more than just a man. He was more than just the prophet. He was God in the flesh. Jesus was re revealing himself to her. In this, I believe the Spirit was hard at work within her, showing her these things as she's there. Just as I can remember my own conversion, it was very similar to this whole thing of, of weeping and brokenness. And then the light just coming. It's an amazing transformation that takes place within your heart. And she, again, just really understands who God is for the first time and that he can forgive sins. She began to sense this freedom from her guilt. She's now in harmony with God. And see, this is the whole thing about rescuing the lost and wanting people to be saved and wanting people to hear the gospel and repent is to, so that our lives might harmonize with God's plan and his purpose. People that are rebelling against God, they have no idea what they're, they're meandering and they're, they're just flesh, they're just game for the enemy. 
and he capitalizes upon their meandering and their lack of purpose in life. It's just that so sad. It's, a, it's about this rich, full life that God has intended for everyone that he's created. She begins then to anoint his feet with the gift that she had brought with her. She's pouring out her affection to God. This is what true worship is. You know, anointing is a type of consecration. It's what we do. You're setting things apart to God. Um, she's demonstrating, really, her consecration to God. I'm consecrating my life. I'm not going to be a, a sinful woman anymore. That's what she's saying by this act. See, this is why James can boldly say, faith without works is dead. If you don't have a testimony of turning to Christ from sin and realizing that you're a sinner, not some people have, myself included, maybe a little more dramatic of a conversion. It doesn't have to be dramatic in that sense. But there's a, a, a hatred towards sin now. And there's a love to please God and to do righteous things. You know, if you've grown up in a Christian home, we've sort of been insulated from the world and protected. That's good. Your mind and your spirit's not scarred by sin. But how do you, you know, you know to whom much is forgiven, same loves much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You just got to jump up. You got to, you know, step it up a little bit with the love for God. But you got to see it. You're still as lost as lost can be without its mercy and grace. So that ought to be enough to incentive to have works. But look at look at her works. Confession. I am who I am. I'm not denying who I am. Repentance, I'm turning from that. I'm not gonna do this anymore. There's brokenness, the tears. There's service, the washing of the feet. The consecration worship, the anointing of the oil demonstrate that this was a conversion, a turning to God. And then we have Simon. It's interesting how Jesus deals with it. He, again, here's a guy that's completely blinded by his self-righteousness, I'm convinced. And I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not overstating that. But he's not even thinking about this woman. He's actually judging Jesus in this whole encounter. He has no idea what's going on in the life and the soul of this human being. Now, I understand, you know, women were sort of a second-class citizen in that era, unfortunately. And so they were sort of like chattel. I mean, it's kind of sad, very sad, actually. Jesus came and changed all that, thankfully. And he's got a conversation going on in his head. <laughs> this guy was really a prophet. <laughs> no. He's judging Jesus' spiritual ability. He doesn't have any discernment. This woman's a prostitute. That's what's inferred here in the context. He didn't understand. Jesus is not a prophet, and Jesus doesn't understand. Wrong on both counts. <laughs> I mean, he was more than a prophet, right? He was the prophet to come. So he's wrong on that count for sure, right? But he did understand. He actually understood who that woman was and what she was about. Not only that, but he was also aware of what Simon was thinking. And everybody else in the room, probably. So he seeks to correct these mistakes in verse 40. 
Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, is that the way I would address it? Probably not. <laughs> you self-righteous hypocrite, you know. <laughs> Probably not, but you, you understand that, that you know, when you, when you have been around the self-righteous and you've seen a condemning spirit, it's, it's, to me it's unnerving, and I'm not real happy with it. And I don't think God is either. But God is patient, and God is gentle, and he's kind. He doesn't miss anything, but he does address things. Simon, I have something to say to you. And I, I know one thing, if there's any hypocrisy in my own life, I would like God to say something to me. I don't want to be blind. I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to be foolish and stupid. I want to, I want to hear and I want to be, I want to be transformed by God. And I think all true believers feel that way. So he, rather than launch into what he could have, he just tells a story. Everybody loves a story. I like a story. But this debt, this story of you know, debt forgiveness a certain creditor, and of course, if you read through this a couple times, you get the idea that the creditor here is God. And that was really to be you know, implied, and I think <clears throat> Simon caught that. At least he understood that, I believe. Uh, one owed very little, one owed very much. <clears throat> one guy owed, owed $100, and the other guy owed you know, a couple thousand. You know, it's just a lot, way out of their range. They had nothing to pay. This is our state, is it not, before God? Are we not all bankrupt before God? We owe a debt that we cannot pay. Whether we've sinned a little or sinned a lot, we're still in debt to God. That's the whole point here. Simon, you're a sinner just like this woman, whether you want to admit it or not, my friend. Now, he didn't come out and say it in those words, but you know the convicting power of the Holy Spirit was there to nail him to the wall with the truth. And that's what we need. We need the truth. And that's what Jesus was bringing to him. The question is, whether we've sinned a lot or sinned a little, how are we going to do with this? How are we going to do with this debt that we have before God? You going to try to repay it? Really? How, pray tell, will you go about repaying your debt to God? Well, I'm going to go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life, and I'll have perfect attendance. That ought to get me through the pearly gates. Probably not. I'll just go about good works. I'll take my, all the money that I have, and I'll give, I'll give lots to charity so that when I stand before God, my good will outweigh my bad, and therefore God will allow me to enter his kingdom. No, that will not work. You know what? What a man give in exchange for his soul. What, what can you, can you think you can buy redemption with silver and gold? How deceived the natural man is. The only thing that can forgive sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what makes all other religions vain and empty. They have no way of dealing with sin. They have no way of dealing with forgiveness. How, how is guilt to be removed by Allah, by these other gods. There's no, there's no atonement in their works. There's nothing mentioned in their writings about true atonement. Because they don't have it. It's works. Do this and you, you hope. Do this and you hope. 
Well, we, we're beyond that as Christians. We know in whom we have believed that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day because we're under the blood of Christ. It is his blood and only his blood that can remove the guilt and take away our sins and write our name in his book of life. That's the only thing that works. As Jesus directs this conversation, so which, who's going to love him more? A sinful person that's been forgiven a lot or a guy who's lived a moral life, been raised in a Christian home and towed the line all her life? Which guy? Well, that's pretty obvious. The one who was a train wreck and was ruining their lives and realizes they've been delivered out of hell. Of course. You've judged correctly, Simon. But notice what Jesus says in verse 44. And I had to read this a couple times and then some. Jesus turned to the, turned to the woman. Now, get, get, get what's going on here. He turns to the woman. Focus. Focus, Simon. Simon, do you see this woman? Oh, there's a woman here? I mean, he's clueless of what's going on in that sense because he's still judging Jesus about allowing this to happen. You know, this is why a lot of sinners will never be saved. They're so busy judging God that God should have done this, and if God was God, then why all this evil? T- why does he allow it to take place? If he's a God of love, he wouldn't let this happen, really. You know not of what you speak. They want God on their terms. But until we come on his terms in brokenness, and humility, to the invitation that he's given to all, he'll remain blind and unknowing. And this is the case. Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see what she's done? She's washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. She's kissed my feet the whole time. She's anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Her sins, they are many. Has Jesus acknowledged that? They are forgiven. She loves much. Do you even see or understand what was going on, Simon, in this soul, this broken woman look compare yourself to her I'm the honored guest here he didn't say this but that's he invited Jesus to dinner that makes him the honored guest that means everything that she did for Jesus is what he should have done right where's the water to wash the feet right you gave me no water to wash my feet you gave me no kiss there's no hospitable woman just said oh like everybody else you know you didn't anoint my head with oil, and she's anointing my feet. He didn't spend any money. He didn't put out any expense for the expensive oil. Now, granted, this is not this is olive oil here, probably according to the word that's used in the original there, uh, the expensive ointment that Mary used in John eleven is the costly stuff. This is probably not, but she came with what she had. That's. The, a mini sideline there. It's very easy, I think, for us to not see or understand what's going on in the soul of someone who's hurting and broken. You know, we, it, it, I, you know, I'll just confess, it's really easy to write people off. 
you know, when you're around the homeless and you've worked with them from time to time, or people come up to you and when you're filling your tank up with gas or walking into the store and they hit you up for money and try to get you to buy them gas and all kinds of things that, you know, because they're beggars. And sometimes, sometimes I, I give and other times I'm hard-hearted, maybe. In my mind, I think, you know, why should I, you know, encourage this kind of behavior, you know? Why are you begging? Because you're greedy and or and lazy and aren't willing to work. You know, so you can judge people. You sort of, you know, you put them in a class of people and you sort of don't see them as an individual. And I think that's really what goes on in this situation. He's not seeing her as an individual. He's seeing her. Well, that's the sinners out there. We're the religious righteous people, and they're the sinners out there. You know, and this is something that that a discipline we need in our lives is that we have to take each situation that, we're, that has an encounter and at that moment, Lord, what do you want to do here? Don't just have this, you know, cookie-cutter approach, ching everybody's that way. No, God might want me to help that person. So I have to be careful in my own negative a- attitude sometimes towards this because I don't like moochers. <laughs> I'm like no different than you guys, right? You have to just, okay, Lord, it's not my money. I'm not my own. What do you want to do here? And that takes a discipline. And, you know, we just, that's, I think that's the right approach. And then on the other side of that, I, I think I'd rather fail in, in the area of mercy and giving to people and let them use me. I think Jesus got taken advantage of all the time. You know, I'd rather stand before the Lord in that manner than the other way, if you know what I mean. So, I think Simon's <clears throat> still viewing her as a sinner. He's outwardly condemning her and her sinful behavior and her lifestyle. You know, I probably had the idea, what's she doing here? Really? What do you really want? I mean, you're washing his feet. I mean, come on. I, I don't put that by on the whole situation going on in my it's like They there's just really down, look down their self-righteous noses at these people. He's focused on Jesus and who he's not. <laughs> I think we have to be spiritually attuned. That's what I'm getting to here. God help us to be spiritually attuned and looking for an attitude and an action that would reveal what's going on in them and maybe what's going on around us. We need to be more sensitive to that. Jesus was very. If there's ever a time a church needs discernment in dealing with hurting and broken people, it's now. Because I can't tell by looking on the outside whether or not they're open to receive or they're just wanting to take advantage of me because they know that Christians are compassionate. It's really uh, a lot to think over. I just love this last part here. Jesus says to her, there's no gr- I don't think there's a greater word from the Lord you can ever hear than this. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that an awesome statement when you think about it? Praise God. I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. Never get beyond that. We'll never get beyond that. 
And then you have the self-righteous. Well, who can forgive sins? Sometimes you just wonder how Jesus endured such contradiction of sinners, as the Bible says. They're all sitting at the table. And they're all saying to themselves, not just Simon, but the whole group of these guys. It was the church guys. The guys at church. Who is this? Who even forgives sins? Really? Hold on here, Mr. Miracle Working Guy. You can forgive sins too? Wait a minute. That's God's department. Well, by the way, fellas, who do you think's doing these miracles? You know, you think it might be God instead of a man? Yeah. Yeah, her sins were many, but the Lord forgives. This is what grace, this is what mercy is all about. It's what it looks like. You see, this is the heart of God. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the very heart of God towards you and I, who were once sinners, saved by grace and now called saints by Him. We were all there. This is, this is what it looks like. She received she was received by Christ, and she received his grace, and that allowed the forgiveness and her true love for Jesus to be expressed in a very humbling act of being at his feet, washing and kissing his feet. That's the thing about God. He does not turn anyone away who comes broken and contrite, seeking forgiveness. The true grace of God is received when it's received the human spirit melts. We just, we surrender. There's nothing greater than the love of God. It's the greatest thing. This is one of the greatest things that I'll ever preach on is the love of God. You just can't top it. You know, and if you receive it, you could care less what anybody else thinks. When I got, when I received the Lord, I came out of the, we lived in a little village and I was the hellion in the little village, one of them. And one of the every so often type person that went to church, raised in a good home. I come out of the, down the steps, and they came around the corner, and I think he almost wrecked his truck. <laughs> Whoa. You know, seeing me come out of a church, like the devil walking out of the church, right? I mean, just like, whoa. And in my heart was, I knew he had no idea. I'm 18 years old, and I know he had no idea what was going on in my life. And I didn't really care if he knew. And that's what happens. You know, I had a reputation. Not a good one at that point. That's what happens when you receive it. It doesn't matter. I just love you, Jesus. And I know you're going to change me. I know you're going to change me. I'm not that anymore. I want, to say, I want to point out the seven things that she did at Jesus' feet one more time. Now, no doubt, in my mind, this was planned. How do I know that? Why do I say that? Because she knew, according to verse 37, she knew that Jesus was at the table at the Pharisee's house. So whether it was a spur of the moment, how long she knew, she had this planned. She took her oil. She came to Jesus. 
She stood at his feet, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet, and she anointed his feet. And this isn't some religious ritual that she learned at the synagogue, because she didn't go to the synagogue. This is what come from her heart, because she knew she was not right with God. And this is what it takes. People need to know that what to do. This is what the gospel message is all about. We're bound in sin. We're a sinful people. We're fallen and we need a Savior. We need forgiveness of our sins. The gospel says it is the blood and the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection leads us and gives us the, God the right to extend to you and I eternal life. And it comes through the forgiveness of sin. No other religion can offer that except Christianity through Judaism. And this is not some learned ritual. She is seeking forgiveness. I need God. I need God in my life. She needed to experience, and this is what we're learning in our church here, isn't it? Unconditional love. Well, not until you stop whoring around, then I'll accept you. Well, as soon as you stop smoking and drinking and doing drugs, then you can come into the kingdom. No. It is come as you are. You aren't man enough. You aren't woman enough. You don't have enough within you to change yourself. I'm the one that's going to do the changing, says the Lord. I am the one that's going to transform you and fill you with my spirit, and your heart's going to be made new. You're going to be born again, and you're going to be a brand new creature in Christ. That's the way it works. So don't think you can clean up your life and come to God and everything's... That's religion. That's what religion is. Jesus, come and say, come and die. Come and surrender. Accept the truth about who you are and repent. Turn to him. It's simple. Hey, look, if I can do it, you can do it. Your faith has saved you. She believed that Jesus would receive her. You got to believe that Jesus is going to receive you as you are. Oh, well, I've sinned so much, there's just no way. That's a lie from hell. That's the lie from the devil. There's not one sin. Actually, there's only one sin that cannot be forgiven. Everything else that you can imagine under heaven that man has committed can be forgiven. There's only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and that is to reject the offer of forgiveness. That is to blaspheme against the Spirit, to say that Jesus' death is not sufficient for my sin. That's the unforgivable sin. It's pride that holds back the natural man from admitting and thinking that they're too dark, they're too gone, they're too messed up. It's just a lie. There's been a lot of demon-possessed people delivered from all that evil, set free and washed and cleansed and are now serving the Lord with great joy. And they've got a great eternity with Jesus waiting for them. So don't let the enemy lie to you. I want to end with this. And what Jesus said to her is so important for all of us. Go in peace. See, the Bible tells us that there is no peace for the wicked. When I was outside Christ, when you were outside Christ, did you really have a tranquil thought life? No. We were tormented. 
Our lives were a train wreck in some ways. We may have not been a basket case, you know. They may not have had to call the guys with the white jackets to come and, you know, wrap us up and haul us out. But there was really no peace. Not like the peace that you experience when you've spent time in worship. There's that tranquility. You see, peace is always the result of true worship. It's always the result of a true encounter with God. There's peace. First John 4, I think I can pull up back there. And by the way, <clears throat> you guys are really doing well. We were making jokes yesterday about you all be falling asleep about right now. You guys are really doing well because we worked really hard yesterday and I was going to have Joanne wake us all up with a squirt gun. So I didn't have to, she didn't have to break out the squirt gun. Good job. But First John, First John, meanwhile, back at the ranch, First um, John 4, 18 and 19. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You see, that's what happens when you get right with Jesus. All the fear goes. All the torment goes. You know, it's a Hebrew concept of peace carried on into the New Testament is very important for us. You know, Jerusalem is known as the city of peace, right? And it's made up of a couple different words, but um, you will see, and then uh, Yuri, uh, and you, means you will see, and Shalom means the peace of God. So in Jerusalem, you will see the peace of God. And what happened in Jerusalem? We know that that was where Isaac was offered by Abram on Mount Moriah there, but it's where God chose to sacrifice his son on the cross that he could make his enemies, those rebels of humanity, his friends through the blood of the cross where Jesus hung there at Calvary. That's where you will find the peace of God in that city of God. That's why he loves Jerusalem. That's why we should pray for what? The peace of Jerusalem. But shalom is conditional. Peace, Hebrew, in the Hebrew concept of peace, shalom is conditional, and we need to understand that. As it says, Isaiah, as I said earlier, Isaiah 48, 22, there's no peace, says the Lord, to the, for the wicked. There isn't that mental tranquility. So it's not indiscriminate. It doesn't go out to everyone at all. He actually withholds his peace from those who rebel against him. So the wicked and people outside the faith they have no idea what I'm talking about when I say the peace of God. There's two kinds of peace that are really kind of mentioned here in the Bible. One is peace with God, and then that happens through confession, repentance, and conversion. I am no longer an enemy with God, but now I have peace with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Him now. I don't hate Him anymore. But then there's for the believer the peace of God. This is the peace that passes all understanding. When you're going through something, trials, tribulations, things you just don't get it. You don't know. God's there saying, I got this. I got this. Trust me. 
It's like, okay, okay. It rules. The pe- let the peace of God rule your heart. That's what it, the Bible tells us to do. It's like the umpire. No, no, you're out, you know, that kind of a thing. You're not allowing bad thoughts. You're going to let peace rule. That's the idea there. So, and that's carried in from the Old Testament. Uh, I think the Israelites were mistaken and they thought that they could have the peace of God irrespective of their behavior. No. You cannot have the peace of God without correct behavior. The Bible tells us over and over that we have human responsibility. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're to keep ourselves in a place where God can bless us. That's our human responsibility. The New Testament word, irene, it means that. It means harmony. See, that's what it's all about. That's why Jesus came. That's why he's accepted this sinner woman. He wanted to be back into harmony with himself. That's what it's all about. God wants to bring this world back into harmony with him so that the world can experience his peace. Isn't that what the angels announced at the birth of Christ? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You think the message has changed? I think not. It's still there. That's what it's about. This is the final thought, and I'll close. And Thank you for your patience. Shalom, Irene, Greek word, involves the realization of the full potentialities of all creation in its ultimate reconciliation and unity with Christ. Shalom seems not to merely speak of the state of affairs, but it describes the process and activity, a movement towards fullness. That's what the peace of God does. It brings us to all that God has intended for our lives. And that's why as believers we are to live in peace with him and with each other. And do your best every day this week to be at peace with all men. <laughs> that's all you can do. You can only do your part. You can't worry about what other people, but boy, what you can do, what I can do, right? May God help us to these ends. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good things that you have in store for each of our lives. Fill us with your love Fill us with your grace and your peace. Increase our faith, Lord, as we cast all our cares upon you. Bless us now as we uh, fellowship with one another, Lord. Go before us this week, in Jesus' name.